Hi everyone, this is Ali Reza. This is a new episode of Paytech Talk. Today we have again two gentlemen which you already know. We have Henry de Jong and Gökhan Norsenin. Plus we have a special guest, Oliver Negler. Uh, because today's topic is something very special. We are going to talk about self-sovereign identity. It's a tricky, a tricky word. So I'm giving over to Henry. Please try to explain what is self-sovereign identity. Okay. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh... Ali, um, I only do, use the abbreviation SSI, so uh, <laughs> I keep it short. So uh, to me, SSI is a, a decentralized model of a digital identity where individuals have complete control over their personal data with re re without relying on a third uh, party. And in SSI, users are in charge of creating, managing, and storing their digital identity information in a secure and encrypted manner and can choose to share it with others on a need-to-know basis. And this gives individuals more privacy, security, and control over their data. And uh, that, uh, that all sounds fantastic, but uh, Gökhan, Ali, and I, we have no idea how that works. And uh, we therefore invited uh, Oliver Negele, the uh, founder and CEO of uh, Blockchain Helix. And uh, well, Oliver, the floor is yours. How does SSI work? Yeah, thank you, Henry. And uh, first of all, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, we know each other so long, so it's it's really fantastic that we're talking about this topic. So, um, self sovereign identity, and um, I, we sometimes call this self determined identity as well because it's uh, self sovereign is a bit uh, misleading sometimes. And you can think of of SSI as the the secret magic to your digital identity, as it allows you to share just enough information about yourself, just to the right people at just the right time. And it's a, a revolutionary concept that is right now uh, as well attracted a lot the, the European Commission as well to roll this out over, over the, um, yeah, so to say, the, the whole realm of, of uh, European citizens. Um, so it is, of course, regarding control and privacy over personal data. And the main reason is because you do not want to rely anymore on those centralized entities like, like Facebook or Google, right, to hold the them to hold your personal data. So you want to decide who sees what and when, and you want to say really goodbye to the hassle of remembering multiple passwords, and you say hello to the world of the self-sovereign identity. And uh, to give you, an give you an idea how this, this actually works, because this all boils down to a, a wallet that you, you own, And this wallet then is there for you to organize your digital life, right? So for instance, what we're doing, uh, short spoiler, so to say, we, uh, we're operating our own wallet called Helix ID. So once you onboard it with Helix ID, you receive a decentralized identity that you can think of like a post box, right? And each of those identities that then as a holder, this is called a holder, yeah, um, is then guided through a verification process with verification partners. And with this verification process, you receive within your wallet, you receive what is called a verifiable credential that has all those different uh, credentials with your identity. So if there's a third party that actually wants to receive some kind of proof about your identity, sometimes known as know your customer or KYC, um, this identity information that is stored within your wallet and that is signed with this issuer of this uh, credential is then 
presented as a verifiable presentation to the verifier, in this case can be a car sharing company or whatever, so that the proof of this identity then goes from the issuer to the, to the verifier in a secure manner. So in the end, it's called a trust diamond, so to say. And this, of course, gives a whole new flavor of how you can interact with this digital world and this digital lifestyle. So, and this, to give you a bit more of a, a spoiler thing as well, that, that, that can be done as well with what is called a zero knowledge proof. So you do not actually give the data beforehand, but you're giving the trust beforehand saying that the receiving party knows that I'm over 18, for instance, without knowing which age I am, for instance, right? So just that you're as an introduction to, to what it is. It's a bit of a, a complex um, a techno technology, but in the end, this is a new W3C standard, um, what is, so to say, the basis of what we call internet. Um, so we're talking here about a new standard, and uh, that's why it has a lot of different relation to what you guys are doing regarding payment. Yeah. So maybe, Gukan, regarding payment, is this something that you resonate with? Yeah. I mean, in our day-to-day -day business with corporates and enterprises and also banks, of course, that is something which is, I mean, first of all, you described it pretty easy to digest and understand there first of all thank you for that and i guess spot on with all the kyc and and the knowledge which will be shared through the ssi mechanism let's call it like this because at the end of the day it's a kind of mechanism which works there and um we can also see it like we have now a kind of middleman who's a trustworthy person and say yes that individual you know it has a liquidity that individual is over 18. And I guess that is pretty useful for corporates, things you gave a great example about uh, car sharing companies, the same would go with leasing companies. If someone is want to lease something, they don't have to make pictures or scan their paychecks anymore because you know you have all the data needed in the wallet or on the blockchain right now. They just ping, you know, get a message or at least get a green light from that system and they say, okay, now that's your car. For instance, Visa tried that over years in the US um, that you can go for a drive with a car which you like and can uh, write immediately contract for leasing out of the car. Now, but back then there was a missing link with the payment, you know, and having all the informations there. But now with that stuff, you, you would have at least a mechanism to understand the person who drives the car where, you know, he has a driver's license, he has credibility, he has money to to close the contract, you could do that contract immediately out of the car right now. On the flip side, banks could also use that. And I don't think that it will erase something within the banking world. There is another use case. You know, you, the KYC stuff is such a tremendous action in the world of finance that sometimes we still have to do that manually. You know, and when we automate that and have now the stuff in the blockchain ready for us, you can get that immediately, especially customer onboarding, which is, especially for corporates, very heavy and, and you know, it needs time and time when you onboard the co uh, corporate client. Some banks need even weeks and months to onboard a client, but now you have, you know, 
you can speed up with that because you have that already through SSI. And, and that is also something, and we have to imagine, now we are entering a world of real-time payments, real-time information, real-time everything, you know? But the problem with real-time payments is you also have real-time fraud. How we can overcome that? That means we also have to speed up and then adjust our KYC systems. But if we have the SSI and people do peer-to-peer -peer payments, you know, you don't need that much because at the end of the day, it's all backed in the blockchain. And I guess that's the beautiness of all the technology there and, and what we could use. Unfortunately, um, I've, I think it's still early stage, with especially with corporates and banks, to discover the Web 3.0, you know, because what we did or what we are doing right now in the U.S. is, you know, we have the first community banks out there who are trying in baby steps to ex, yeah, explore the metaverse and what options and use cases they could have as a bank, as a financial institution in the metaverse, but also in Web 3.0, you know. And what we are doing with them right now and some other banks is we having frequent workshops and brainstorming meetings about the use cases. Because it's like with cryptos, you know, it all depends on the on the use case the token or the coin has at the end of the day and what we use the coin or the token for. And that's the same here. And I think we still need some time to be there with SSI for the financial institutions. But I guess the adaption will be pretty quick happen there. No? It will be need the time to understand the benefit. Because the most problem which we always have is what's in for me, you know, especially the problem now with instant payments, for instance, in, in Europe is we have the SEPA, you know, we have the SEPA payments. And if I'm sending money to Oliver or Henry, it's the next day on your account. So there is no real need for doing real time payments from from the point of view of some some customers and clients. But there's also some benefits. And I guess until financial institutions, especially in Europe, understands the benefit of all that stuff. We need some time, but then afterwards the adoption will will quickly happen, especially when re, um, instant payments becomes mandatory in the in the SEPA region. You know, you you maybe heard that that uh, the EBA decided that they will make it mandatory, but currently it's go through going through an approval process, which takes maybe another eighteen months, and then the banks become a time until they will have to adapt. That will maybe also take eighteen months, so at least two to three years until we have the adoption over there. But then I think if we have all the real-time payments out there, then SSA, SSI is definitely something they have to use there. But I think, you know, with all the Web3 and blockchain technology, which goes hand in hand, um, my question to you, Oliver, would be, do I need really a blockchain or a wallet in the blockchain with my private keys on my phone? Or are there any other ways to store and control the identity of mine? So that it is not necessary to use a blockchain for, for the identity part. Um, it is a utility that you can use, but this is more something for the machine room. So there's a lot of different um, ongoing discussions in this whole SSI world regarding um, if blockchain is the right tool or not. And you can look at it more from an agnostic point of view, saying that whatever tool underneath it might be, might be better, you use just this. Yeah, it's more of, a, of something um, regarding uh, data protection laws um, uh, and even things like GDPR that, that plays a role here. Uh, and that would be maybe a question to, to Ali Reza regarding GDPR. So if you hold those information and um, you're, so to say, considering something like a public key um, being a, an, yeah, something that is, um, might be traceable regarding a, an individual, 
if a public key is considered something regarding GDPR as a um, PII, what's called, yeah? so a personal identifiable information. I mean, yeah, that's a good point, uh, Oliver. I mean, as you described it, uh, once you have the SSI and the people are have, having control over their over their, their identities, one may say, or one one could say that we do not need any regulation to protect protect the privacy. Um, uh, th this is true. I mean, uh, if it really works, this is true. I mean, if you look nowadays and how it works, um, uh, when you look at the platform where. Um, different parties share information, you usually have different documentation requirements, which comes from the GDPR. You have the data privacy declaration and you have um, something like a data privacy um, announcement, the DPA, and some documentation which shows where the data of the person is going to, who's using the data, who is uh, storing the data, who is maybe deleting the data. And, and all of that is necessary because Uh, without SSI and without the possibility to control your data, one may distribute and share data which is unnecessary for the for the for the other party. And uh, if the other party has your data, the other party can share this data with third parties, and and then you you never know where your part your data is circulating, where your data is. And this is this is uh, the the dangerous part, and this is where GDPR comes in and tries to protect the circulation of your data and tries to uh, minimize the, the the yeah the exposure of your data to the really the, the minimum requirement what is needed and um you, you gave some examples oliver and I, i really like those examples i mean uh, maybe you can elaborate a little bit more on that i mean for instance if i would like to do some car sharing and i would uh, uh, show my data i mean nowadays you would come and show your uh, driver's license and maybe your id but Is that really necessary to to do the car sharing? I mean, uh, I mean, back to you, Oliver. So, what is really necessary to 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 do car sharing, and then maybe some other cases, uh, buying uh, liquor, uh, alcohol, and internet, or uh, opening a bank account. And uh, nowadays, we only have one set of documentation, which is either your uh, personal ID, the passport, or the uh, you have your driver's license. But uh, are those information really needed? For these three use cases, uh, renting a car, uh, buying liquor, or opening a bank account. So maybe you can elaborate a little bit more on that. So for the listeners uh, who, who face these um, challenges on a daily basis, understand where SSI is also helpful, uh, not just for the uh, companies who collect the data, but especially for the persons who share the data. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really good question. I mean, we had a We had a project in, in 2019 together with Mercedes-Benz and, and Daimler um, that was considering re regarding what is called nowadays multimodal mobility, right? So the idea is that um, there, there are cars standing on the street and, uh, and people just want to use them uh, instantly, yeah? And those cars can be from specific yeah, car-sharing companies, but those can be individual cars as well from yeah, private people. And of course, uh, consider yourself. I mean, it depends on your your appetite if you want to share your private car. That's that's a different story. But consider there's a there's an individual person that wants to give. I mean, like like Henry owns a car. I don't know which car you have, Henry. But if a Bukan wants to 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 ride this car, so what happens now? I mean, um, Henry needs to check if Gökhan has 
the reasonable amount of data um, so that um, this driving license, if there's some kind of additional check that might be necessary regarding credibility or any kind of other allowances. But Henry cannot store those data actually because he as a, a, a private person cannot collect and, and, and manage uh, other private uh, data from, from Gurkhan in this case. So that's where the idea of a zero knowledge group, for instance, comes into play, where if there is a certain legal claim regarding Gurkhan driving uh, uh, Henry's car against the wall, <laughs> might might come to an insurance case, right? So in this case, you, you can think of it as this uh, a trust triangle or the trust diamond as such, uh, saying that the selective disclosure with a zero knowledge proof is makes it possible that even Henry, as a private uh, person, can get into this whole idea of of managing data in between those different people. So and this this goes all the all the way from from top to bottom as well as from bottom to top. So if there's a, a certain request regarding a liquor store, this is an over eighteen request that is just the idea of um, yeah you do not need to show your passport as such, but you just consider that this over eighteen check is a true false decision, right? And regarding financial services, we're entering this 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 um, the, the really the, the, the top level here. Um, what will definitely come later because there are a lot of um, requirements for this. Um, but of course, this is um, something that you can you can think of whatever you need to show, you will show that what is called a verifiable presentation and then you can you can work your way around. Yeah. Um, thank you, Oliver. I, I don't think that I will ever uh, hand over my card to uh, <laughs> Gogan, but uh, it, it, you, you addressed a, a topic that uh, that keeps me busy all the time because uh, how, how can I check the identity of a person? Yeah, how how do I know that it's uh, real and uh, not not fake? And I understood that there are trusted parties such as uh, uh, governmental organizations or or banks that uh, can give me an attestation or someone else. Yeah, and the more trusted parties give me an attestation, the the more likely it is that I'm a real uh, person, yeah. Um, but 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 still, there is no 100% um, knowledge, or I, we. It's not sure that the the person that is over 18 and has a driver license and is going to drive my car uh, is the is really a person over 18 and has a uh, driver license. Yeah? So um, a question to you, uh, uh, Ali. So is there any jurisdiction about this attestation? Or, or Oliver, can you give me some names and real life examples of organization providing these or these attestations already today? Yeah, maybe I just start and then uh, Oliver, you continue. So I give the legal theoretical background and you, Oliver, you give the practical examples. So um, it, it really depends in which industry we are we are we are active or we are moving right now. As Oliver just said, if you're in the financial industry, the standards I would say are the highest. So in the financial industry, of course, we have the anti-money laundering uh, rules and laws, which come from the MLD five and which are implemented in national law. In Germany, we have this uh, law on combating uh, money laundering, which says, for instance, that 
um, uh, regulated institutions that are trusted by law. So any regulated institution which is doing some KYC check and who's helping others to do KYC checks, so you can trust them that they do everything correctly and that they know how to check, for example, an ID. Uh, but there are also third parties which are not regulated institutions where you as someone who, who wants to, to make use of the service of the third person you have to make sure that this third person is is reliable and can do such checks but in the end of the day you would only check uh yeah other information which someone would say it is true for instance you would check an id and you would check uh, a passport so where authorities said this data is true However, what you cannot really do with this checking the, the, the documentation is to say that the person who is using the documentation is the real person. So, for instance, in Germany, for this, we have a, 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 a real person verification, which means that you would normally go to the uh, financial institution or to the person who wants to check you in person, and you, the person sees you and checks the ID and says, okay, this is true, or you can use the post office in Germany, and then the person goes going to the post office and doing this check, or you can do in Germany what we know as video ident. Uh, you can have some specialized persons uh, where, where we again say uh, we, you can trust them. There are service providers which Oliver can name, and these service providers again they have some certification. Some get it from the telecommunication authority. Some get it from the governmental security uh, uh, standard uh, authorities, like in Germany the BSI. And you need to show some kind of uh, yeah, some some certification that people can trust you. In the end of the day, we use these people because others tell us we can trust them. But I, coming back to your question, I would say uh, I, I couldn't say if it's real or fake. I couldn't say if it's true or not. Uh, I only trust uh, those people because the law or, or people tell me I should trust them. But uh, this is, a, again, where I would say, an SSI and blockchain where we do not trust people, an intermediary, but we trust the the the, the whole environment is, is maybe something better. But um, giving the second part of the question regarding the, the, the persons and the, the practical use cases, I will give over to you, Oliver. Yeah, so um, that, that's actually a really good question, Henry. Um, I mean, you can think of it like a, like a, um, a chain of trust. So they, they, of course, there need to be some kind of a register that that claims that a specific attestation provider uh, has a certification so that they can undertake certain actions regarding the verification and issuing um, of those verifiable credential that then can be resolved towards this register um, in order to prove that this cryptographically hashed information called as the identity proving uh, is go going back to the source, right? And um, this is something that, for instance, um, uh, what is a, a very big project regarding uh, European blockchain service infrastructure uh, is right now underway as a framework um, so that this, this setup of attestation providers, registers, um, certification for certain, um, for certain level of assurances is taking place. What we did from our side, because this is not yet there, we built this whole platform, so to say, as a blueprint on our system. So we have built in a KYC hub. We have different verification providers. All those verification providers have a specific private and public key that they own. Uh, so that in the end, whatever this verifiable credential as a KYC, call it a package, so to say is, can always be traced back towards that this um, cryptographically hashed information 
has been issued by a specific certified source, right? And, and this is something, if you think of what is called um, um, public um, key infrastructure, is out there since, since, since 20 years, 30 years. It's the, same, it's the same function, but of course, built uh, with something that has timestamp and, and those information as well. Uh, gives it a completely new yeah, set of set of um, capabilities here. Does it answer your question, actually, Henry? Yes, thank you very much. I'm, I'm, Ali, I'm I have. A... I'm... <laughs> of course, I guess we are overwhelmed with that information, but but that's why I have a question, just because of the answer of, of Oliver, which raised up to my mind, Ali. Do you think just because of all the things which Oliver described and previously you, because how we trust the people, because someone is saying us to do so and that we can do that, do you think also that the regulator is keen to intervene here and, and being a kind of authority, you know, to having regulations on this, for instance, you know, um, I think that once we have regulation in, in the crypto space, the volatility will be, you know, become less than it is right now. So with the SSI stuff, I mean, we trust the technology, but but there's still a huge portion of the mass market who doesn't trust the, uh, the technology. But if there's maybe something which an authority would create in regulation or release a regulation, we say, okay, every data which is stored on specific blockchains, you know, which works with that SSI mechanism is trustworthy. Do you think something like this can happen? Because currently it's just a different solution set of different providers, you know, and we just trust the technology on in the blockchain, you know, but there's no single instance like the 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 eBar, the BaFin, or call it whatever it is out there to say, okay, that blockchain technology on those blockchains are trustworthy with those solutions. Now that, that's a that's a good point, uh, Gökhan. So. Um, th there was a paper of the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, I think it's now two years old. This was kind of like a recommendation or kind of a, like a, a consultation paper where the Financial Action Task Force actually introduced the, the SSI and also uh, put in that document that you can uh, use decentralized technology to um, store data and to verify data. And this would be a brilliant solution for banks and financial institutions to rely on a, on a centralized um, pool of data and use this pool of data instead of doing the verification and the KYC again and again. And this is something very terrible every user has to experience that uh, you need to do the KYC again and again. And the reason why we have this requirement, why you would need to do the KYC again and again, and that banks cannot just give one data to the to the to the to the other party, um, it is a little bit uh, related to GDPR and data privacy, but is mostly related to the the obligation of the of the parties, in this case the banks and the financial institutions, to make sure that the person they are acting with is the is the right person. Because in the end of the day, if something goes wrong or if they're acting with someone who's maybe uh, blacklisted, sanctioned listed, and some individual who's a criminal, in the end of the day, the, the bank would be reliable for this mistake. And this is why the bank cannot uh, trust other persons um, and cannot put its, uh, 
its reliability and its um, yeah uh, its, its actions it does for on some other third parties. But if we could have a, a decentralized tool, like let's say we take the DLT in the blockchain where we store data and we say that this is hundred percent correct and no one can hack it, change it, uh, uh, fake the data, and it's true. Um, and uh, and we also make sure that this data storage is in line with GDPR. I would actually see no reason why the regulators would need to uh, regulate such a tool and would need to do with something with such a tool, because uh, if um, if the protection of the of the personal data and of the consumers and the protection of the market is guaranteed, then there's no requirement and no need for the regulator to come in and to do something. Uh, but I, I would like to go back a little bit to more to the practical cases. And I would like to ask you, Henry, um, do you have an example or, of where it is, would make sense if a person could simply confirm its identity? I just yeah, want so to make uh, just one, one short remark here because it's really important. Because you, it, for, for the listeners, there is no personal data stored on blockchain. Yeah, that's important so that we're only storing so to say hashes for timestamps but no data that that's only the only thing that i would just want to get in between here sorry henry please continue yeah so what, what i uh so this is an example that i can give uh, from from the from the from the Qantas organization we uh, still have a uh uh a daughter company uh, happy coins um a, a crypto brokerage uh, platform and um uh, sometimes we get uh, clients through a uh, referral partner yeah and uh, it would be very nice if this information that the referral partner already has about this uh, client uh, would well uh, could be confirmed by the by the user just through a key instead of having the referral partner sending all the information uh, with consent from the uh, user to us and we are building the well, or copying all these documents into our uh, uh, CRM uh, system. Yeah, so this is something where a, a key or a, a SSI would be uh, sufficient. So there is one thing uh, what uh, what we did not address. What I think is very important, and that is the the management of the user's wallet. So if you have your uh, own identity on your phone, you are responsible uh, for for managing your private key. And uh, this is, of course, still very difficult for uh, uh, most of the uh, users. Uh, we, we, we read about uh, st stolen cryptos, but uh, yeah, what happens when your identity get lost or stolen? Uh, Anyone, any suggestion or answer to that? Yeah, I mean, I can, of course I can tell something about it because um, we have we have different different parts that we can we can work with here. So there's there's one part is called an edge wallet. So that's that's um, just um, so to say completely within an, a mobile device. So this mobile device holds those information, and if this mobile device is lost, um, then all those informations are gone. The other part is a cloud wallet. So there's um, all the information is so to stay so to say stored with a third party uh, within a, a cloud service. What is actually a bit of a 
contradiction to, to the main idea regarding uh, what is a decentralized and, and fully self-managed system. So we, what we, for instance, build is a combination of those two so that you're, you're operating with an edge wallet, but still based on a, a lot of magic with encryption, you can work with multiple, uh, multiple devices. And if you're losing your phone or whatever, you can always recover those and, and work further on. So there are, of course, uh, a lot of different possibilities here. Uh, you always need to think of um, how this uh, is is done and managed. That's uh, uh, quite uh, something that is is, is quite tough. Um, and regarding the uh, Web three wallet, um, how to overcome this whole thing regarding private keys because it's a bit of the same thing. Um, we we did a backup and recovery method for this as well because we believe that if somebody is operating on a on a mobile device. Wonder or oh wonder, they are the one side that's working with iOS and the other side is working with Android. So what else do we have in, in, in nowadays, in, for instance, in Germany? Um, so what we did here, because all of them actually have those different uh, cloud drives that are attached to it using a specific uh, encryption method that is only valid for this person, for a specific, um, for a specific part, and then store those information, what is called a seed phrase, for instance, uh, within this cloud cloud drives, and even if this is if this is um, somehow leaked, nobody could use something with it. So that's that's mainly um, to get this adoption with convenience, right? But this is of course um, that took us a lot of uh, a lot of time to set this up. Yeah, very impressive. Yeah, th thank you, thank you. So as the time is, is running by, and I, I would like to have ask one final question to you, Gökhan. So we, we talked today about SSI a lot, and I would like to understand if SSI uh, doesn't make any sense for the future for the for the industry. And if I think about the industry, for me, the the payment industry, like pay tech companies, this is something where I I myself I believe as a, as a user of of uh, yeah, pay tech tools, which are which makes it easy for the user to do some instant payment, some quick payment. Um, would you say that SSI is something which the payment service provider are going to use in the future and which may replace the current KYC system? How do you see it? Do you think uh, there's a future for SSI in, in the payment service industry, even though payment service industry is heavily, heavily regulated, but at the same time wants to give to the user a very user-friendly way of payment and, and doing the payment? Well, I would say even like as a side note, uh, because we are in Germany, I think the payment solutions in Germany really lag behind compared to the global environment. Just looking in Europe, a little bit outside of Europe, I think we can improve much better when it comes to payment and give a much better payment experience for the users. So do you think SSI is going to help in that situation? It definitely, for sure, 100%. Um, but then we have to define the term of the future. You know, do, do we talk about the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, you know, then because then we have different answers. If you look to the next five to 10 years, I don't think it will, the KYCs will disappear. Maybe they will adapt and change it a little bit in the way how they act currently and what, what kind of services they provide. But I think we also have to consider the, the context of open banking, especially when you have marketplaces around. SSI will be definitely a game changer for, uh, payment service companies, so-called, uh, or PSPs, let's call it like PSPs, payment service providers, who offer some services additionally to a portfolio of someone else. 
or in, in the context of embedded finance. Then you have SSI, you know, which is a convenient way for a payee to send the payment. Or if we have request to pay, for instance, and we receive a request to pay something or to, to buy something. And, and that is definitely something which will help there. But again, there has to be an understanding. And that is what we discussed in the beginning uh, about the, the understanding of the use cases, what benefits we, ha we have. And you totally spot on that different regions globally are having different mindsets. Unfortunately, some regions, just because they don't, they don't have, or they underbanked or have non-banked, you know, and that's why they having so much technology right now. Or we have countries like, for, for instance, the Middle East or Turkey, or at least 10 years in front of us. And then and I just talked to a paytech out of Turkey, and they're already considering to bake in SSI in two days their digital wallet you know so those those thoughts are already existing but then coming back to us here in central europe at least in U europe and uk that needs time but of course it will be adapted within the next three years i would say until the banking world is opening up five years and then i think then the kyc systems will start to change a little bit in their way behave but i don't know what chat gpt will bring us here you know with its ai but that's another story i guess Yeah, thank you, Gergan. Thank you. I mean, I think this was so nice words for, for, for the end of this podcast. And I can just hope that the SSI transformation and also the digital transformation, not just in the payment industry, will move faster. I think it, uh, everyone will be happy seeing that. I would like to thank uh, my guests today. I think it was a very nice podcast and I'm looking forward to talk to you again. Likewise. Yeah, great one. Bye.